Oh, Father, we do respect you this morning as the ruler of all. Father, in Jesus' name, make the world know that again, and let it be renewed in our understanding, even this morning, even by the words prepared in your presence that will be proclaimed today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As advertised, we'll be back in the book of Romans this morning after a short hiatus. If you're visiting, we've been in a uh, long and laborious series on the book of Romans, which for the last few weeks we took a little detour from for various reasons. And we are back now, right in the middle of chapter 8, which is a great and climactic and uh, most important chapter 8 of Romans. So I'm going to ask you to turn to chapter 8 this morning. I'm going to read verses 18 through 23. My remarks will be based on that passage. So Paul writes to the Romans, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Oh, Father, find us eagerly awaiting this morning for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Amen. All right, so we're back in our series. Um, The subject we were considering when we left off, which of course is the great subject of Romans chapter 8, which begins with that triumphant opener, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's way of reasoning. He likes to give you the... uh, the great subject first, the great proclamation. He's telling you that there's no need to worry about your final glorification in Christ if you have faith in Christ. So he states it emphatically at the outset, and then he goes on to argue through it and convince you of it. Because the apostle would have us not only be saved, but to be assured that we are so. So much so that we dare to face our lives with great courage, knowing that the outcome was never in our hands to begin with. It's a great myth of our society that outcomes are in our hands. They're not. They're in the hands of God. And the best we can do is to go to Scripture and try to understand what His intentions are for this wayward world and for our place in it. Friends, full assurance is God's will for the church. He would have us be assured. And there's a path to full assurance. And it's done by building upon the various doctrines of the faith, which Paul 
I'll go into with some review this morning. Full assurance of our salvation is not only achievable through the continual development of an informed faith. You see, the, the apostle would have us know things. Knowledge of doctrine increases faith. Faith is saving when it comes to you in its rawest most immature form, if I may speak of faith that way. And it's built up over time by an increasing knowledge of God and a closeness to Christ. So Paul would give us knowledge that we might have a a mature faith, an informed faith. But it's not the apostle's intent alone. He He wants us to aspire to that end. He wants to convince us that it's worth it for us to delve into the Word of God that we might walk through our lives assured of where we're going. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to turn there just, just for a minute and, and, uh, and read something to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to go down around with verse 23 where Paul sort of gives his resume. And what is his resume? His resume of the things that he suffered for Christ. And so he writes, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes, that means lashes with the whip for punishment, for preaching the gospel. In stripes above measure. In prisons, more frequently. Paul wrote several of his epistles from a prison. In deaths, often. They left him for dead a couple of times. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Boy, the Jews were so legalistic, they were allowed to give you 40 stripes. But just in case they would go over, they went one less. Just to make sure they didn't break the law. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of waters. In perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils of the Gentiles. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness and toil. In sleeplessness often. In hunger and thirst in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. For who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to stumble, and do I not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things concerning my infirmity. I'm tired now. He went through all of these things, and the, in the reason he had the courage, he was assured of where he was headed and for what purpose he suffered these things. So Paul's labored over the last several chapters, teaching us of our position in Christ. We sang of it this morning. We talked about being justified before God. We stand before God fully justified. Now, what does justified mean? It means our sins have been atoned for. In one of the songs this morning, We saw a definition, we went right by it, it said, God is satisfied. Our justification satisfies God of our place in his presence. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Paul taught from chapter 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been justified. The lexicon tells us that justification is acquittal. You know what acquittal is? It's being pronounced not guilty. You're innocent of the charges. 
It's as though they didn't exist. We read from the lexicon, justification is signifying the establishment of a person as just by acquittal from guilt. It's a legal term. It's a courtroom term. Indeed, our salvation is sort of a courtroom drama. I love courtroom drama. Uh, Yet it's more than mere acquittal. It's more than just being innocent. Your salvation is more than just being forgiven and having escaped the pains of hell. It's more than that. And Paul is trying to get us to see that. The word is dikaioma. It's defined as followed. The word for justification. Dikaioma is best described comprehensively as a concrete expression of righteousness. You're not only innocent, God's declared you righteous. So the blood of Christ does indeed pay for our transgressions, but it also moves us into a position of righteousness. Not that we've earned righteousness, but Christ imputed his righteousness to us. There's this phrase throughout the New Testament, we are in Christ. We're in Christ. It speaks of this union with Christ that we had. And I'll develop that somewhat this morning in way of review. So justification begins with acquittal. But it provides for us our access to God. And friends, this is only for believers. And Paul stresses that repeatedly throughout the epistle. He writes, Through whom also we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory. So justification begins with acquittal. But as I've said, it does not stop there. It moves towards glory. And that's the subject at hand this morning. Verse 18 begins, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Justification begins with acquittal from sin, but it doesn't stop there. It moves on unstoppably towards glory. And that's the subject of the passage. By virtue of being declared guiltless before God, we may approach God without fear of rejection. That's part of our assurance. In fact, we may approach with complete confidence of being received. Friends, we've been invited to the throne room of grace. Make your petitions known to me. Pray in the name of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the second point of assurance. The first point is justification. What's the second point? He gave us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God. And the Holy Spirit lives within the saint. Paul calls it the free gift. Now he does that for emphasis because gifts are by nature free. It's redundant to say free gift, but Paul says it repeatedly throughout the epistle. It's the free gift. You would never give someone a gift and say, um, and that'll be five bucks. It's free. It's understood that the gift is free. Gifts are free. They're given out of the grace of the giver. And so we have the free gift, which is the justification, and he gives us also the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. It's the divine assurance that we're children of God by the indwelling Spirit of God living in us, having gained entrance into us by our faith in the shed blood of Christ. And so Paul goes on, and he writes, So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So you see there's this distinction between the believer in Christ 
in the understanding of what Christ did for us at Calvary and for those who don't. Those who don't have that relationship are in the flesh. He said, but you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit if, indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And he goes on. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And that doesn't matter how many prayers you make. It doesn't matter how many pilgrimages you go on. What good deeds you have done. None of it matters until you're right with God in this place of justification. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. He goes on. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Friends, if your faith rests in Jesus Christ crucified, if your faith rests in knowing his resurrection, you are crucified with him, and Paul assures us, and this is the assurance, as you are crucified with him, you will be risen with him as well. And so we go from justification by the blood to sanctification by the Spirit. So the Father justifies us by decree. He just declares it upon whom he will. And the Spirit comes into that person and begins to sanctify him. That means to mortify or put to death the deeds of the flesh. But that's still not the end. The end is this concept. It's, it's kind of difficult to understand, really, from this side of glory. But the concept is glorification. Each step is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit within the believer. Paul wrote also, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Only the children of God are so intimate with him as to refer to him as Abba, Father. It's a sense of belonging the saint has with God. Just like you are not afraid to go to your earthly fathers for things, well, some of you may be, that's unfortunate, but it's not supposed to be that way. My kids were never afraid to come and ask me for things. And on those, what's, and on those occasions, when they were a little afraid, they told Joseph to come, <laughs> the youngest. They would say, Joe, go ask Dad about this. And so there's this sense of familial belonging. It's a family belonging. We cry out, Abba, Father. He uses the word adoption. Jesus is the begotten son. We're the adopted sons. He uses the word heir, but he doesn't just say we're the heir. An heir is the person that inherits, right? He calls us joint heirs with Christ. We inherit all that Christ inherits. If this doesn't fill us with assurance, I don't know what can. And so that brings us to our passage today. The passage speaks of the further work of justification, which, as I've said, is never an end in itself. Our gospel would be wonderful, friends, if all it did was forgive sins and save us from hell. It would be wonderful. But there's so much more, and Paul would have us know that. But what he wants us to know is the path is paved with trial. Now, I'm going to tell you there's a... There's a false form of Christianity out there that would have you believe that, that trials are God's judgments upon you. But Paul just gave a list of all the things he suffered 
for Christ as his credentials for being an apostle of God. And so I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. Suffering is the path to glory. The path, though, is paved with trials, as we've seen. They'll be suffering along the way. However, the apostle assures us that in all these things we are, what does he say in in the end of Romans? We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. For the Christian, suffering leads to glory. Our present suffering is, in fact, the inevitable precursor of future glory. And it's an impoverished Christianity that denies this fact. So much of Christianity today sells a brand of redemption that's pain-free. Such is not the gospel of Christ. Paul himself was chosen for redemption. Remember when Paul was chosen? God had to go to Ananias and tell him to receive Paul. Paul had a very bad reputation of persecuting the church, as you know, before he came to Christ. Very famously, on the road to Damascus, um, It's Acts chapter 8, I believe. And so we read this. God had to go to Ananias. Ananias said, I heard a lot of bad things about this guy. And God said, no, go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And then listen what he says. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. Suffering is part of the path to glory. And that's why Paul's writing this. He doesn't want the suffering to break us down and to make us think for some reason the glory isn't assured. The path, the, the, glory, the suffering is part of the assurance. What did he say to Peter and John when they, were, when they were whipped and beaten for preaching the gospel? We read from, uh, from the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 41, where Luke writes, They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his sake. The suffering they saw made them worthy. They didn't only glory that they would eventually be glorified, they gloried in the moment of the suffering itself. That's why I read this morning in my prayer what James said, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's a difficult thing to hear when you're in trial. Oh, count it all joy. I never want to diminish the pain people feel in their suffering. But at the same time, the promise is there in the midst of it. And it makes the suffering endurable. In fact, for the believer, friends, it makes it glorious. To the Hebrews, it's written, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. It's talking about Christ. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. In other words, consider what Christ endured on the path to glory. And that should help you from being discouraged in your souls when you encounter suffering in your life. It's fitting that I should preach this message this morning when there are so many people in our close congregation who are suffering at this moment, even with the uh, momentary uh, passing illnesses of this life, of our physical life. He says, you've not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord... From whom, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he scourges every son whom he receives. Friends, a father's correction is not hatred, it's love. 
And we have to twist that around in our thinking. Our society would have us think that disciplining your child is a, is a, a bad and hurtful thing for the child, when in fact it's the embrace of fatherly love. I would go so far as to say it's the embrace of divine love of that child. But he who spares the rod hates his son, the Bible says. But he who loves him disciplines him promptly. So friends, suffering's the pathway to glory, but there's a glory also in the suffering itself. We read this even from Romans 5 where it says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. It helps you endure to the end with your integrity of your faith intact. Peter says the same thing. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Have you ever said, why me? Now, I have said that. I must admit it to you. You look around. You see people doing so well and so healthy. And you've been taken with some illness or some trial that you have to endure. And you wonder why you. But Peter says, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So let's not forget the promise of Christ Jesus himself when he said to his beloved, in the world you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You see, Paul can see that the Romans of his day in the Roman church were suffering for their faith. It was endemic in the early church. Very difficult to put a church together in a big city with all kinds of eclectic faiths and other gods. And for you to get out there and say, no, my God who I've found is the one and only. And so Christian people are no exception from the suffering that's in the world. And suffering can wear us down. It can chip away at hope. I remember after a long illness, this goes back to 2006, I was diagnosed with a faulty heart valve. I had to have it replaced. It was supposed to be fairly routine, but it wasn't. Some of you were there. It it took four tries. It took overnight. People were sitting around the clock. It didn't look like it was going to happen. And... uh, the doctor came in, my Jewish agnostic doctor, came in and said to Brenda and husband John, they were there, and he said, I hope you people are praying because I can't do any more. Even the Jewish agnostic doctor knew that there was something beyond his skill that would have to save this patient. And sure enough, I was saved and the bleeding stopped. I had this tube coming out and it was bleeding constantly and they couldn't make it stop and it just stopped. And after that, we came home, and it was a long period of getting back to full strength again. Some of you are going through that now. And, there was this, and Karen and I lost our hope to some degree. We were fearful. Everything we did, we perceived around the corner there was some tribulation ready to get us. I don't know if you've ever felt that before. But in one moment, I said to her, you know something? Do you see how we're bound up now? We've had a trial. It's produced perseverance in us, but we cannot let it produce fear of the next trial, which may or may not come. We have no control over it anyway. We can fear it from now till doomsday, and it may or may not come. 
And we made a decision at that point to just live our lives and to be free once again in our spirits as to what we do and how we would rejoice in the world. So we rejoiced in the suffering at that point. We had to turn it around. It had to be a conscious effort on our part. But suffering wears us down that way. It discourages faith. It chips away at hope. And though he and me, Paul and me, would never downplay the severity of the sufferings of the present time, the person of faith must ever be aware that the promise of future glory is not only profound and unimaginable, it's grandiose and guaranteed. And I'm going to struggle today to try to describe it because it's indescribable. Suffering is preparation for glory, and that's Paul's message from Romans. And isn't it interesting that we're bound up with the creation? He's saying, man, the king of creation fell in sin, and all of the creation groans waiting for the redemption. Creation has fallen as well. The king fell, Adam, and the kingdom fell with him. So I want to take a moment to consider that the apostles' meaning may not be restricted to the mere suffering of the individual. It certainly isn't. It includes that, but he's not restricting it to that. He's speaking about all of creation in this passage, which I'll develop in future weeks. But he's including all the accumulated suffering of the human race from the moment of the fall to the glorious future reclamation of all things when God remakes the heavens and the earth. He's including all that. He speaks of suffering on a world scale. He speaks of suffering on a historical scale. All of creation was subject to futility, he said. All of creation. That means the mountains and the hills and the oceans. Subject to futility. And by the blood of Christ, creation itself tells us he will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Or rather, that creation will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. And so, all these things throughout all of our history as a race, creation and man with creation, has suffered horribly in the wake of God's wrath. For it's wrath that is the apostle's introduction to this epistle. That's how we started out in chapter 1, you remember? It's the wrath of God unleashed in the cosmos that must be assuaged in order for the world to regain its initial pristine order and beauty and divine purpose. And so Paul wrote in chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's a sweeping statement. That the world, since the fall, is under the wrath of God and is suffering in that. And so his wrath extends to the, really to the corners of the universe, friends. And the suffering of which he speaks is to a, a universally unimaginable extent. The apostle has worked his way up to this doctrine. He introduces the subject of glory, friends, but he's talking about a future glory. There's a taste of it now. Remember we talked about the foretaste of glory, he said? There's a taste of it now. We recognize now the uh, atonement of Christ and the born-again nature of our spirits and that we're no longer subject to sin and temptation. We have the power to turn away from those things. That's all a taste of the glory, but it's not yet been seen or fully revealed. It's on its way, though, and Paul is assuring us of that. It has been ushered in at Calvary by the spilt blood of Christ, 
but it comes on the wings of the word by whom all things were made and by whom all things will be remade. Remember in the beginning, the word, let there be light, and there was light. The word is powerful. It's creative. It calls things into being. Let us make man in our image, the word said. And man was made. God said, let us cover the earth with water. And the waters did cover the earth. And now our gospel tells us that the word... The word that became flesh and dwelt among us may be heard throughout the cosmos that the blood has washed over the world. And out of the suffering, suffering that shed that blood, so would come the glory that was bought by the same blood. And the word will say with a loud voice, let all creation be renewed together in an instant, and it will be so in that day. It's like Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus. And Jesus said with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man walked out of the grave. The gospel of Christ is that word. And Paul says that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And so he speaks of glory today. Doka or doxa. And we read the definition of glory from the lexicon says, of the nature and acts of God in self-manifestation. That is what he essentially is and does as exhibited in whatever way he reveals himself in these respects and particularly in the person of Christ in whom essentially his glory has ever shone forth and ever will do. I just find that so wordy. Have you noticed that Paul speaks of glory, but he doesn't define it? He expects us to have some kind of inkling, some kind of knowledge of what it is. If he said to the Romans, oh, glory, you know what that is. That's the nature and acts of God and self-manifestation, what he essentially is and does as exhibited in whatever way he reveals himself in these respects, and particularly in the person of Christ, in whom essentially his glory has ever shone forth and ever will do. I think we would have been bored and turned away. In fact, I'm surprised you're all still here. But Paul... He speaks of glory without defining it. He assumes understanding of the term. There's something in us that knows what he means, and I'm going to show you that from the word. Glory is the ultimate end for redeemed mankind and the world from which mankind emerged. It is the veil of God wrapped around his creatures, made in his own image and likeness, It's described elsewhere as a celestial robe, a heavenly garment that's given to clothe the redeemed. In fact, you might look at your redemption as clothing. It's spoken of often in scriptures as a garment. And the unbeliever comes to God in God's sight naked. He came without the garment. He can't be accepted into the feast without his wedding garment, we read in the parable, right? So it's a heavenly garment. It's, it's clothing given to the redeemed. It's clothing that God can see now and will see in the future. Where forgiveness and justification are the beginning of salvation, 
sanctification and a mortification of the deeds of the flesh. That means putting to death the old sins you had in your life and not practicing those anymore. Those are the effects of salvation in the here and now. But glorification is the glorious conclusion of salvation. It's the climax. It's the ultimate purpose of salvation. John wrote of it to the church. He said, Beloved. do you love when John calls us beloved? He says, Beloved, now... We are the children of God. Now we're the children of God. But he goes on and says, but it's not yet revealed what we shall be. In other words, it's more. He says, but we know that when he's revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as it is. Friends, glory is contagious. When we see Christ, we're going to catch it. It comes on us. When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. One cannot stand in the presence of glory without becoming glorious himself. That's if he's got the garment on. If he doesn't have the garment on, he's like those guys at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark that open their eyes. <laughs> you know, I always wanted to rewrite that, the end of that. By the way, it's a very theologically sound movie. I suggest everybody see. No, I don't, suge- I don't suggest movies for people because there's always something in there I forgot that pastors shouldn't tell people to listen to. So... But at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, you can't look upon the ark when it opens up. That's part of the old mystery, the legend of it, right? And, of course, every, all the Nazi guys at the end are looking of it, and they get, of course, melted down to teeth and eyeballs. You know how it looks. And, and uh, Indiana Jones tells his girlfriend, don't look at it. But if they were saved, they could have looked. They could have looked if they were saved. Thankfully, he didn't. He had more time. But that's how... Well, I'm sorry, that's how my mind works. I, sorry to lay that on you this morning. but Beloved, we're the children of God, but it's not yet revealed what we shall be, so don't look upon it unless you're saved. But then it's safe. We sing of it. <clears throat> holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We sing from Isaiah. From the book of Revelation, John wrote this. Jesus dictated it to him. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. He's giving him a vision of the glorious remade world and universe. He said, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. You know, I always took that as there's no sun and no moon and no cosmos in the new world, but it doesn't say that, does it? It just says that the sun is not as much light as the presence of Christ. I almost suggest to you the sun and the moon are still there just to show the glory of God. It says the Lamb is its light. This is when the whole creation is glorified again in the end. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. Notice he talks about nations being saved. Nations is an interesting biblical concept when you think about it. Friends, What does Peter call us? A royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, we're not a country. We're a nation. There's a difference, right? A nation are people that are bound together by ideas and culture and maybe constitutions. But countries are land masses with borders, some with not so great borders. Um, But he talks about a saving nation. He speaks of us as a nation. 
The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles, listen to this, or causes an abomination or a lie. In the new heavens and the new earth, friends, you won't have to wonder if something you hear on CNN is true or false. A lie cannot enter in. And just for fairness, I'll throw in Fox News and News Nation and all the others because I'm a very skeptical guy. I don't just believe something because somebody says it because I know the world today is not glorious and it's full of lies. There'll come a time when no lie will even be able to enter it. If someone tells you something, you can have every confidence that it's true because the lie just couldn't get in there. Now notice, that wasn't the glory of Eden. Eden was susceptible to the lie still. This is a greater glory even than Eden that he speaks of. There shall by no means enter it anything that defiles, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There really is a book of life, it seems, with pages (laughs) and names. You know, once Karen and I went to um, an inauguration of a president, I'm not going to tell you which one, (laughs) it was many years ago, and just as we were leaving, our old friend Russ Pretentis, who was a Secret Service agent, said to us, hey, you want to go to the Commander-in-Chief Ball? And we said, we'd love to go to the Commander-in-Chief Ball. He said, well, go rent a tux, because you ain't getting in like that. So I had to go. I had to rent a tux. Karen, of course, had a nice dress, and it was, it was winter in the city, and it had snowed. It doesn't snow there much. In fact, they don't have plows. So the snow falls, and they hope it's not much, because it just stays there. And we were out at the inauguration, and there was, I don't know, 500,000 people, and there were metal detectors everywhere, and it took all this stuff to get in. You know, you, you couldn't just walk in. You had to be, you know, searched and all these things. And then we left... And we went back to my friend's house where we were staying, and we were getting ready to go to the Commander-in-Chief Ball, which only a few you know, special people can get in. You have to have someone to get in. And so we came there, and we went, and we took the subway, and we came up out of the subway, and there was no one on the streets. A couple hours earlier, there was a half a million people there. And no one was on the streets. It was dark. It was snowy, rainy, sort of. And we're walking, looking at our map. No GPS in those days. That gives you a hint of which president. But... We're walking, we're walking through the city, and we finally come to the place where our name had to appear in the book, or we weren't getting in. And they had all these neatly typed pages of names, and they're going through all the names. And Kasiri wasn't in alphabetical order. There wasn't much hope we were getting in. And they went through the names, and they're flipping through the pages, all these neatly typed names. And at the end, scrawled in ink, was Dan and Karen Kasiri. We just snuck in by the end. He got us added on to the book of entrance. I always think of that when I think about the Lamb's Book of Life. I used to think, well, that's a nice metaphor, but I tend to think now it's really a book. It's really a book. It's in heaven, and your name has to be written in it. And so he says, John says, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There will be no night there. They need no lamp, nor, excuse me, nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Friends, glory is light. And if it's not light, it begins with light. It begins as the light of truth. No lie can live in its presence. For in the new earth, there's no shadow of lies, but glory boils over to perfect all of creation. All who are exposed to it are glorified. It's light, but it would be a blinding light to any who would look upon it with unredeemed eyes. Hence my illustration. But to the redeemed, it's the light of grace and truth and everlasting life. The light and glory are the garment of God bestowed upon the redeemed. Remember we put on the full armor of God, right? He talks about that in the the book of Ephesians. Put on the full armor of God. Put on the helmet of God, right? The helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness. We are clothed in God's clothing. And that's part of the glory. And so we read of it. From the Psalms, O Lord my God, you are very great, you are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. We're never to think of our salvation as simply forgiveness of sins. Agreed? We should not rest our thoughts and hopes on the fact that salvation is mere deliverance from hell. Of course it's all those things. First and foremost, I would say. Yet Paul would have us look to the future, to the end, to the ultimate purpose of God in the sufferings of Christ. And that's glorification. Christ didn't suffer for some meager purpose or for some meager Um, congregation of people but for a great purpose for a great congregation of people that he calls a nation of the righteous it's when all things will become what God intended them to be since the very beginning the process was marred and halted for a while by the fall but through the blood of Christ it's begun again and creation got the news creation knows that glorification's coming and it's groaning and it's in tumult And so Paul gives us this great verse of assurance. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. If you're a believer in Christ today, you're on that path and nothing can stop it. You're on the way to glorification. Suffering is suffering and it could be severe, but it does, it's not even a speed bump to glory. Glorification, Lloyd-Jones wrote, means full and entire deliverance from sin and evil and all their effects and in every respect, body, soul, and spirit, the whole of man will be completely and entirely delivered from 
every harmful effect of sin. Friend, friends, you're delivered from the guilt of your sin, but we're still in the presence of sin, aren't we? To some degree, it may be said we're still under the power of sin, although I would argue that we're not. But someday we'll be removed from the presence of sin. It'll no longer be a consideration. It won't be a thing. We shall become like the Lord Jesus, he wrote, perfect men, glorified men, or as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, to a perfect man, he said. We have a new spirit working in us, working toward our righteous witness. That same spirit guarantees our future glorification and inspires hope in present sufferings. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. That means he talks to us in some secret inward way. He bears spirit with our spirit that we're children of God and if children, then heirs. Friends, I hope you're comfortable walking into the presence of God and if you're not, renew yourself before him with an understanding, with a, with a declaration of who you are in Christ. So the Holy Spirit guarantees this process will come to its fruition. We are the heirs. We are the inheritors of a divine fortune. We're the sons and daughters of God. We cry out, Abba, Father, which is a very intimate relationship with him. We know to whom we belong. Just as Jesus is the begotten son, we're the adopted sons and daughters of God. We share a blessed union with Christ. We were in Adam. Remember the language? We were in Adam. Now we are in Christ, Paul writes. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Christ died and was buried, and so did we die with him. Or do you not know, Paul asks rhetorically, that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He was made alive, and so we too will be made alive. And he writes again to the Romans, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. It gives you the whole picture of baptism, being buried in death, immersed in the water, and risen anew and cleansed from our old sins. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And so Paul says, therefore, we may reckon ourselves. We Remember reckon? We may deduce. We may conclude what Paul concludes. That after having understood all the evidence leading to this point, that just as we were justified, just as we were sanctified, just as our sins were mortified, we will be glorified. We get all the way. Now there's a sense in which the fall of man was a fall from glory. And salvation in Christ is a return to past glory. But though we may not stop there, for the glory that awaits us is an unimaginable condition. The glory in store for the faithful far surpasses the glory of Eden, as I have said. From where we stand, it's only a thing that can be hinted at or looked at through a glass darkly, as Paul says elsewhere. Calvin warns us not to embellish, not to imagine things. You know, I'm very skeptical when I read things about things we can't know about, when I read what heaven's going to be like. I'm very skeptical, unless it's directly from the Word. I'm very skeptical about the nature of angels. You see all these... um, popular 
books and novels and movies today about angels and demons and all these things. I'm very skeptical about those things. We don't want to think beyond what's actually revealed. And so Calvin says, It's not meet nor right for, for us to inquire more curiously, for if reins be given to speculations, where will they at length lead us? Let us then be content with this simple doctrine, that such will be the constitution and the complete order of things, that nothing will be deformed or fading. In the beginning, we're told that man was made in the image and likeness of God. He was made perfect in body and mind. He was made Lord over the animal kingdom, Lord over creation. Everything that was made was made for man's sake and was made for man to rule and to enjoy. There's certainly a type of glory in that. Only man had this divine image dwelling in him. There was a special dignity and importance given to the man over all the other creatures, over all the other facets of creation. Though man was made in the image of God, we should by no means imagine that man was divine in his being. There was a special likeness of God that God imparted to the man. There was a lordship bestowed upon man over creation, but God was lord of the universe and its creator. So the lord of the universe was lord over the lord of creation, if you follow that. There was a simple divine hierarchy implied in the created order. This sense of divine glory imparted into man is hinted at in other places in the scripture. We read of it from the Gospel of John where we read of Christ that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. There's a hint of that glory in every man born into the world. It's something we're striving after. I believe that's what the glory of man's all about. Man knows there's something in him that's striving for perfection and glory. You know, when you look back at the accomplishments of man, look back at the accomplishments of the pharaohs and the great temples they built to themselves. And you think of all of the great architecture of the Greek age when they put all those famous um, temples to all of their various gods down the streets of their cities. These were their glories. The Romans did likewise, and some of the ruins are still there. You can still see that the glory of man was great. I believe man today glories in, not in so much in his architecture, in the things he builds, but he glories in technology. I think we think technology will take us all the way. I really think that people are starting to believe, and I see all of these advertisements about renewing your youth, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be all worried that my testosterone's going away and I have to take these pills so I could be a man again. I see this stuff all the time. I'm like, it's going to go away someday. You know, you see all these things that get rid of what? Crepey skin? Eyefall? You know, all of this cosmetic surgery? All of these things. We're trying to reach for that glory. I want to tell you something. I had a friend, Karen and I had a friend early on when we were married and she was a, a beautiful but elderly lady and she was very wealthy and she was a very good friend to us in those days and um, because she could afford it she had all of these things done she had this surgery done to make her more appealing and more beautiful and uh, some of that stuff doesn't work so well she came out looking pretty good as I recall and she was all renewed and she was in shape and she was thin and the wrinkles were disappearing and the hair was not gray anymore and all of these Cosmetic surgeries gave her a sort of a luster of youth. 
And she died just a few months later of cancer that was working away at the inside. You know, technology is not going to lead us to glory any more than the architecture of ancient civilizations led them to the glory they thought they'd have. Pharaoh went into that great um, pyramid at Giza thinking that would give him eternal glory. And in case you haven't heard, it didn't, it didn't work. What each man knows of his own glory in relation to the glory of God is given to him by God. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. In other words, we have something in us that tells us we should be glorified. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God... Notice Paul gives credit to every man for having some inkling and understanding of God. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Friends, to say I know God, but I don't worship God, is proof of your misunderstanding of the glory of God. He's worthy of worship. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Friends, be very careful about that relationship as a Christian. If you know God, you know your place before God is to worship God. They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. Thankful for what? For knowing that something of God in themselves. They became futile. That means empty, useless in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, that knowledge of God was taken away. They had no right to it anymore. And in that same chapter, Paul says, God gave them up to themselves. What each man knows of his own glory in relation to the glory of God is given him by God. Each man is the custodian of his own perceptions. Each one responsible to consider that though the glory of man seems great in the things that he's accomplished, it all pales in comparison to what he knows somewhere in his being is the greater glory of Almighty God. Man fails when he's drawn away by thoughts of his own glory and considers not the glory of God. And because the man Adam was made Lord over all creation, his fall was the fall of all creation, just as the fall of a king is the fall of a kingdom. And so verse 19 says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Friends, the earth is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed in glory. And then their glory will break out. This may seem a strange passage. It's the personification of creation, of the inanimate substance of the universe. But we're assured that as man is part of creation, that his fall affected all of it. And in some mysterious sense, the whole created order yearns for former glory. John MacArthur, in his treatment of this, in his commentaries on Romans... Quotes from John Muir. Anybody know John Muir? You must remember John Muir. He's one of the great naturalists early in our American history who who created the national parks. And he's the founder of the Sierra Club, for those of you who follow such things. Great naturalist, saw the beauty of nature. And MacArthur takes... um, an opposite view from him. He, he, MacArthur writes, he referred, he referred to nature as being unfallen and undepraved. In other words, only man is depraved and nature is not. 
Well, that may be good um, science today, but it's not good theology. He goes on to say what most of us would presume apart from biblical theology, that only man is blighted and has a blighting touch. Friends, all of creation has fallen with man. And even though we look on mountain ranges and beautiful streams and uh, prairies and the firmament of heaven and the oceans, those things will someday be perfected and we'll see them in their, in their true glory. Not so, says Paul to John Muir, even the grandiose spectacle of untouched mountain ranges and vast ocean expanses have declined in glory by the fall. And we can only imagine what their return to glory will look like. And so we read, and I'll close with this and I'll develop it next week, is the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you to inspire in us the search for wisdom that would give us the great assurance that Paul would offers to the saints, O oh Lord. We ask that we would have it and keep it for our own, and we would declare it to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.